Now it's time for the Disney View podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his grand circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. On today's podcast, I wanted to give a little love and attention to a couple of attractions in the Magic Kingdom that I think deserve a little more credit for what they are. There's a little bit of a history to some of these attractions, so if you'll indulge me, I wanted to spend a few minutes talking about five attractions in the Magic Kingdom that have a deeper backstory than you realize and are really more interesting in many ways. And I wanted to share with you why I think they're important and relevant to Disney's history. So let's get started by talking about Prince Charming's Regal Carousel. I'm gonna start by talking about Cinderella's Golden Carousel. This was the carousel that was behind the castle in the Magic Kingdom. And it was about theming and placement. The Imagineers took great care to find the right sort of thematics to put around it to make it Cinderella's golden carousel, to make it really interesting and compelling and tell a story behind it without actually telling you the story. It was behind the castle for a reason. And when Roy Disney saw it the first time, he came to the park and he looked at it. There's a story about him saying, this is in the wrong place. Now, their story goes that he thought it was about eight inches over from where it should be, and they needed to move it to make the aesthetics just right because they wanted to look at it and see it through the castle and you could actually see, when you look through, see the carousel behind it. So it was important to him to have it placed just so. And so the story goes that they did actually move it that way because they had to make it aesthetically attractive to make it work in that space. So this is really the hallmark of the Disney parks to a large degree, that they really took the time and care to put things in the right place and make sure that they themed them and they had the imagination in them. And so you had Cinderella's Golden Carousel located immediately behind the castle. And it was important because you were telling the story of Cinderella. You had Cinderella's castle, you had Cinderella's Golden Carousel. The story goes that one of the horses in the carousel is actually supposed to be Cinderella's horse. Uh, I believe it's the one that had the gold tail. I think it still does, but that was kind of the story, but it was an untold part of the story. It just made it kind of interesting. So, as you know, Disney over time has kind of evolved their thinking on some of the thematic thematics and some of the aesthetics and the way things work. And they decided that telling the story of Cinderella like that didn't really make sense for some reason. And they renamed it Prince Charming's Regal Carousel. And so the thematics changed a little bit. It was a little different from what it was originally. This was Cinderella's golden carousel, and you've lost that. When they were planning for Walt Disney World, the company was looking for a carousel to kind of live up to Walt's vision. So what he wanted was a carousel at each of his parks because it sort of fit in with the idea of this amusement park he wanted to have. It was really themed in some way. So the carousel at Walt Disney World was built by the Philadelphia Toboggan Company in 1917, so it's more than 100 years old now. It was originally known as the Liberty Carousel and was delivered to Belle Isle Park in Detroit, Michigan. It was on display there for 30 or 40 years before it was sold off and moved to the Olympic Park in Irvington, New Jersey. 
Now, in 1967, when Disney was planning for the Walt Disney World Resort, they wanted a carousel. They didn't want them to have to make one from scratch. There were some in, in, on display different places, and some of them had been underutilized. So Disney made an offer to purchase this one and were able to successfully buy it and move it out to California, where they actually did the restoration on it. They produced new engineering drawings for the mechanisms, the horses. This carousel was now 50 years old. And they stripped them, all the horses down. They give each one, gave each one a unique paint job. Now on the carousel itself, there are 18 distinct and unique horse styles, whether the leg is up, whether it's bigger, whether it's smaller, it's headed to the left or the right. There are 18 styles in there. So they made fiberglass casts of each of the 18 styles. And why that's important is because of the wear and tear. Over time, all of the horses tend to wear out a little bit. There's wear and tear, they scuff marks, the paint comes off, they start to break a little bit. So what they actually do is create extra horses that match the ones that are out there, and they paint them, and that way they always have one ready to go on display should anything happen to one of the ones that are currently out there. It's a very clever way of keeping the ride always operational in a sense. They only have to take it down for maintenance when they have to do general maintenance on the mechanisms or some of the uh, pieces within the uh, inner workings, which actually are still in pretty good shape after 100 years. Now at the top of the carousel, going around if you look up, are 18 panels that, that tell the story of Cinderella. Now originally it was a different story that they used to tell. It was sort of a story of some maidens and sort of a charming prince, but it was a similar sort of thing. And if you look at each one in detail, you realize that it's really telling the story. It really tells you something. Pay attention to it, take a look at it. It's kind of interesting. It really does share something with you that's a little unexpected. It's sort of this idea of you being either a maiden or a hero in the story that's being played above. So it's kind of cool in its own way. It has a little history to it that's kind of interesting. Now, the other thing you'll notice about this particular carousel is that it has the original calliope playing music. Now, a calliope is an organ of sorts, but the thing about a calliope that's really different and unique is the fact that it has these steam pipes that produce the sound, and it's really unique and very distinctive in its sound. It's kind of interesting the way the sounds go up and down because of these steam pipes, and the, and the reason this particular organ was created was to be an attraction. So you could hear it from a great distance and actually be drawn toward it because you heard music, and it was kind of fun music and jaunty, if you will, and it was kind of fun and uh, people would be attracted to it. You would often see them at traveling fairs and on showboats and other places like that where you wanted to draw a crowd. So you would play the calliope music, and it's always sort of upbeat and kind of fun. And what Disney did was create a, an anthology of different princess-themed songs that are in their portfolio, in their record archive, that they actually put in there as part of the calliope music that's playing when the carousel is moving. It's actually very clever and very cute. And they've added to it over time as the repertoire of music and songs has changed and you've added new films. So that's one that I think is really kind of interesting. It's 100 years old. It has a calliope. It has the original horses. It has most of the original inner workings, even though it's been updated and there's been some changes made to it. It's still in on display today. And it's really pretty cool. And it was something that was near and dear to Walt in a way. So it's kind of interesting in its own way, just because it has that sort of connection. And I find that to be one of the more interesting attractions in the Magic Kingdom. You may overlook it. You may walk past it and go, yeah, it's a carousel, big deal. But it's much deeper than that. If you've never ridden on it, I would highly encourage you to do so. It's really kind of neat and kind of special. I'll look at the horses, spend some time and study it. Look at the paintings, at the murals at the top. Spend some time and just admire it for a couple of minutes. It's a small world, after all. It's a small world gets a lot of hate, mainly because of its kind of cheesy nature and the fact that these little figures aren't really audio animatronics, they're just cutouts in wood. 
and the song is really kind of grating after a while. You know, it kind of gets kind of gets old, and you, the song that's only about uh, two minutes long, I think, and you're on it for about eight minutes. So you hear it at least four times, plus a few times when you're in line because you're in line for ten or fifteen minutes. So you're hearing the song a bunch of times, and the song is a little bit grating. It's cheesy. It's corny, but it has a historical significance to it, and that makes it kind of fun. Again, it's one of those things that's kind of fun in its own way, in a strange sort of, why is it this way? Now, I do the complete retrospective of It's a Small World back on episode 174, so I invite you to check that out. But it's really kind of interesting. This was one of the attractions that was created for the New York World's Fair. And the things you see at Walt Disney World are the exact replicas of the original attraction that existed at the World's Fair. What they did was they um, created molds and then they recreated the attraction around the world. So it's essentially the same attraction. And it was designed by Mary Blair, who is a Disney legend for her artistry, the color work she did, and the fact that she created these little figures that are supposed to represent the children around the world. And it's kind of neat for that reason. Now, I know I have trouble riding on it too, but it has that iconic sort of classic Disney touch to it that has some really cool history to it very memorable in its own way and really is kind of neat even though it's totally staid and boring and and I, the song is grating i'll grant you that it rolls in my head once in a while and i'll go oh my god not that again it feels like torture as you've heard sunny eclipse say on his show oh that's the song we use for torture just kind of funny in its own way it's kind of a silly thing but because it has this connection to disney and and he had an interest in creating a water-themed ride that would go through and visit children from around different lands. So it kind of has that nostalgia to it in a way. Now, I can't ride on it more than once on a trip, I know that, but it is worth doing once in a while, just because it's kind of neat and it kind of harkens back to Disney's history. The 1964-65 World's Fair really set up a lot of what we know today as what Disney World is, and to a point, how Disneyland evolved. So you really have that sort of nature of there's something neat about this and there's something sort of touching and it kind of grabs the imagination a little bit and harkens back to Disney's history and reminds us how Disney World became so popular. Buzz Lightyear's Space Ranger Spin. Next up is what's affectionately known as the Buzz Lightyear Ride. Everyone just calls it that. I know it has a longer title, but it's kind of an interesting little story that goes on here. In a previous podcast, I talked about If You Had Wings, the original attraction that was in this space, where it was this kind of storytelling in a way that talked about going on vacation and was a free attraction that Eastern Airlines was hosting. Eastern Airlines was the official partner of Walt Disney World, so they wanted to promote their product, and this was the way they did it. And it's kind of, was, it was kind of a fun attraction at the time. And then it became the Dream Flight and was sponsored by Delta and then by no one. And it was kind of an underutilized attraction. And I've talked about the history of it in pretty great detail. But at some point when they decided they wanted to change and make it a, a real attraction and make it something a little more compelling, they had a thought to tie it somehow to Toy Story. And they had this clever idea to make it a Toy Story themed ride where you would talk about Buzz Lightyear on that side of it and give a little bit of more history to Buzz Lightyear's story and how he defeated the evil Emperor Zurg. So I give Disney credit for coming up with a lightly themed sort of story. It's imaginative in its own way. It's kind of whimsical in, its way, in a way. It doesn't really tell a story, but it's cute and it's clever and it kind of gets you in the spirit of thinking about Buzz Lightyear and it's kind of clever that way. But what really makes this attraction sort of interesting and compelling in a way is the fact that you get inside a ride vehicle and you can spin the ride vehicle 360 degrees around, which is kind of cool in its own way. And it has a little infrared beam that it shoots out that goes toward 
uh, a target. And if you hit the target, you get points. Now you can move independently, you can move the joystick for the, the shooting mechanism so that you can actually hit the target. So you can move the car around and you can actually move the joystick slightly too. So you get a little bit of three-dimensional motion and you can have two people in the car shooting in different directions slightly while the car is facing a third direction potentially. It's actually very clever. And from, you know, sort of that engineering standpoint, this is actually pretty neat. And because they put it in the early 1990s, it's really pretty compelling that they were able to produce something like this that was unique and different, and you'd never seen anything quite like this at an amusement park. And it's been there for so long now and been working so well that it's actually kind of a remarkable thing. It's been in place for almost 30 years, other than the traditional rehab periods where you have to go back, do some repainting, do some adjusting, whatever, it's pretty much been running through that entire time. Sure, once in a while, cars have to be taken offline and replaced. And I'm sure they've upgraded the technology a few times over the years. But in general, it's actually a remarkable thing that it's been running for that long and that well, considering the amount of motion these cars get and are a continuous operation for that period of time that the park is open. It's really pretty incredible. I mean, it's just amazing that these things work like that. And it's really pretty cool from the engineering standpoint too, that you have these um, infrared beams that you shoot over to a target and it's able to respond and give you a real-time score based on having hit that target. I mean, the technology behind it is very simple, but very efficient. And it's one of those things, you, you, when you stop and think about it, it's like, this is really cool. It's one of the attractions that I always try and do while I'm there. It's just one of those things that I think is just fun. It's whimsically fun. And, you know, once you learn the secrets of how to get to the high score, it's easy to get there. Well, relatively, of course. There are some factors about who you're riding with, which actual car you're riding in. Some of them have a little bit better accuracy than others. Things like that. But it is pretty cool that it works. And you can get there, and it's kind of neat. And so there's a little fun. And when I go with the family, it's always fun to see who gets the high score. Everybody knows how to get that high score, so everybody tries to get it. My boys are especially funny because they'll always try and turn me away so I can't get the high score. <laughs> it's kind of funny, you know, they'll just, they'll slap my hand off the joystick that spins to make sure that I can't get there, which I, I find kind of amusing. So this is one that really has that sort of fun element to it. It's kind of interesting and fun, and it's totally throwaway when you think about it. Oh yeah, I'm going to sit there and I'm going to go around and I'm going to shoot a laser at uh, these, these uh, targets and try and get points. It seems totally throwaway, but it's so much fun. Now. One other word about it. This is one, but there was always a funk factor that went into that ride. You get on it and you touch the controller and you touch the, the laser and you're touching things with your hands, right? That a lot of other people have touched. Now, you know, I'm not a germaphobe by any stretch, but it always, in the back of my mind, I was always like, it's kind of gross. It has a sort of skeeviness to it. It's not that there's anything wrong with it, not that I ever felt bad about it or anything, but it was just kind of weird because I'd think about it and go, oh yeah, you know, this is something everybody, everybody in the world is touching. I don't know where their hands have been. It's not that in the past I really felt like I had to wash my hands right away. It was always just in the back of my mind that I was thinking, wow, you know, I really should wash my hands at least before I eat or before I do anything else. I should go and wash my hands. You know, touching other surfaces and a lot of things, that's fine. It's okay. That's the way the world is sometimes. And I'm okay with that. But sometimes touching things that are high-touch areas just feel a little weird to me. And then, as we got into this time of COVID, where we were away from people, I started rethinking my whole strategy about you know, touching things and germs and whatever. I'm no germaphobe. That hasn't changed. I don't feel that way about it. But I just feel a little more conscientious about these things and the things that I do. Small story for you, I was never a fan of shaking hands. 
sure, I would do it. It's a social convention. I would do it. And it never really bothered me per se. It was just sort of in the back of my mind. I'm going, I don't really like doing this. This convention sort of irks me in a way. And so I would do it. But as we got out of this time, as we went back into social settings and I would meet people, they'd stick out their hand and I would, I would look at them like, I don't want to shake your hand. And it's just because of me and the psychology of it and germs and whatever that I started thinking, why am I living by other people's social norms and shaking hands? More than happy to do a fist bump or some other thing where it's you know, socially interactive in a way, it just feels a little bit less like you're touching other people's germs. Right? It's that sort of a thing where I just had that moment where I realized that and I don't want to do it anymore. And so I don't do it. And as I think forward to going back to the parks and riding, say, the Buzz Lightyear ride, I'm not sure how I feel about that. I'm going to ride it because I love the attraction, but I'm wondering, will I feel the same way about it in that sense? Will I get on the attraction and will I want it as soon as I get off, will I want to wash my hands? Or will I go about my business and then just wash my hands, say, before I eat? And I don't know what the answer is going to be. Honestly, that's the only downside to it as far as I can see. It's a great attraction otherwise. The Wedway People Mover. Ah, the Wedway People Mover. This happens to be one of my favorite attractions in all of Walt Disney World. It's got an interesting backstory and you can hear all about it on episode 383. It's a two-parter that I, that I put out there and I talk in detail about what the Wedway People Mover is and what it was and what it was intended to do. But let me just sum it up by saying, because it's one of my favorite attractions, it's one I never miss. Yeah, it's slow moving. Yeah, it kind of takes you around Tomorrowland. You go inside Space Mountain and you get to see sort of behind the scenes in there. And other than that, it's sort of just this slow transit around Tomorrowland. And it feels like it's, it's a nothing, but there's so much history to this attraction. And the fact that it was something that Walt had created with his, um, his uh, web designers, his Imagineers, they had come up with something that was so clever and creative with this linear induction motor that allows for magnetic energy to be moving the train along. It was so far ahead of its time, it's remarkable. And the fact that it still exists today and still runs today, 50 years after the park opened, is a testament to how well designed it is. So for those reasons, I think it's really fascinating. Of course, it was part of the whole Epcot design too, where he was gonna have it for the local transit around the area where the research park was, so that people could get into their houses and whatever from there. So it was kind of a neat thing that fit into the thematics of what he had in mind there, was the city of tomorrow. And it was sort of this cool idea. So it fits in Tomorrowland and it really does work. And I still love riding it. It's one of those attractions, my kids love it. There's something about the way it moves and the way it glides through and the fact that there's something behind it that makes it really, really compelling. We never miss this attraction every time I go and we'll ride it multiple times during the day. So it's one that has a long history and I remember it well from when I was growing up and going with my friends and we'd go ride it and we'd ride it and we'd ride it because it was just fun to ride. And you'd, you know, you'd yell at the other people in the next car that was passing you, you'd wave, whatever. And it was just so much fun. And you wondered, are the lights gonna be on in Space Mountain today when I go through it? It was always kind of fun to wonder if that was gonna happen. And back in the day when you still had the, uh, if you had wings attraction, you could actually see into it and get that vignette into the, what it looked like. And that was always kind of cool and that was fun and made it compelling in a way. I call this a can't miss attraction, something that I have to see every time I go. So I would encourage you, if you haven't been on it, to check it out the next time you're there. And if you have been on it, take some time to think about what it actually is and what it means and the fact that you have magnets moving you around and it's, it's like 21st century technology in the mid 20th century. It's remarkable that way. 
it, it really is kind of cool that it came up this way. And it's sort of an advancement over what they did at Disneyland where they had tires and a slightly different mechanism for moving it. It's really pretty incredible. So I love this attraction and uh, put it on my list just for that reason because I think it's really, really cool. And I think a lot of people just kind of overlook it or may ride it because maybe they're waiting to go on Buzz Lightyear or they're waiting to go on Space Mountain and they'll just take a spin on it because it's there and it's something to do. But it has a much deeper story and I really encourage you to check it out. The Tomorrowland Speedway. The Tomorrowland Speedway harkens back to a past and I, for the life of me, can't figure out why it still exists today. Why is it still at Disney World as gas-powered cars? It makes no sense to a large degree because it's one of those things that really is an anachronism to a large degree. You know, we think about environmentally friendly, we think about environmental consciousness, we think about all the things we can do better, and yet here we have these cars that run on gas. They're uh, simple little engines that, that run that way, and it's kind of interesting that they still exist in that sense. So the story is there's a little more to it. And it has to do with the fact that in the 1950s, there was something that was called go-karts that became popular. And people had this interest in riding on go-karts and building them. And they were simple devices that were made from uh, four small tires, some uh, tubing, uh, usually made of like steel or maybe uh, some lighter weight material. And then you had a, basically a lawnmower engine in the back. A lawnmower engine is a two-stroke engine that basically just goes up and down and gives you a little bit of power. It's to power a lawnmower so it can turn the blade, or it can use, you can be used for a leaf blower or something along those lines, but it's really not that powerful. But it is enough to power like a 200 pounds or so on a car, a little moving vehicle that's uh, constructed in this way where it'll roll along. So they moved into some prominence and there were people who owned go-karts and had some fun with them and there were go-kart races and all these other things. And it became somewhat of a hobby in the 1950s. And so it makes sense that, uh, at some point, Walt Disney wanted to have some sort of go-kart attraction at Disneyland because it was going to be interesting and that's what people wanted. So he had this idea to create something like that. The problem is go-karts themselves with the way they're constructed because it's just a metal tubing frame with a couple of tires and an engine on the back are somewhat unsafe. So he had a uh, thought to turn it over to the Imagineers to come up with something safer. And that's where Bob Gurr comes in the picture. Bob designed the frame for what became the cars in the Autopia that became the Tomorrowland Speedway and had this idea for coming up with something that was kind of clever where you, it actually had a little bit more balance to it and had a fiberglass cover on it so that way you could go around at the astonishing speed of about seven and a half miles an hour around the four tenths of a mile track and have some fun where you feel like you're actually driving and of course the safety feature was built into the to the design as well where it only has the accelerator pedal, and essentially all you're doing is opening the throttle when you do the accelerator. Now, because you're only going at about seven and a half miles an hour, when you actually take your foot off the accelerator, it releases the throttle, and the momentum that you have is very little, so you'll actually come to a stop kind of quickly, but the braking mechanism helps it to stop a little more quickly. As I said, the engines are a two-stroke engine, and it's a nine-horsepower engine, so it's got very little power. Now they do gas it up. It's got, I think it's like a three gallon tank in it or something like that, two gallon tank, something somewhere around there. Now, because the track is only four tenths of a mile and the units are running consistently through that period of time, you really, you really get some pretty good mileage out of them. You don't have to refuel the tanks more than once a day. They fill them up in the morning, but they will rotate them off the track if there's a problem and uh, add more fuel if they have to. But generally speaking, they'll last throughout the day. Now the steering on it is pretty simple and straightforward. The steering is just 
a uh, steering wheel that turns directly turns the two front wheels. That's it. And because they have a limited turn radius to stay on the track, it actually is a pretty uh, small amount of turn that you can put onto the wheels. Now they're hard, notoriously hard to turn, but honestly, because there's that rail in the middle that keeps you from spinning out into someone else's lane, it really is kind of irrelevant. All you're doing is just kind of keeping it going in a kind of a line, basically. So it's kind of clever that way. Very clever and innovative design in that sense where they took the go-kart to the next level. Now, as I said, this is sort of anachronistic. These engines, you know, being gas engines and only running a short distance really don't make sense anymore. I don't know why they don't switch over to something else, whether it's a hybrid fuel or whether it's some sort of electric. It doesn't really make sense to me that they don't change. I also can't figure out why they never themed this in any way to something like, say, cars. They have all this intellectual property they're trying to use. And why not make this a Cars-themed attraction that you could be riding on the speedway that's in the Cars movies? And you, they do have one car that's up on the Champions area. Maybe they put Lightning McQueen up there and then they just re-theme the cars. And I'm not talking about huge changes to the cars. I'm just, I'm just thinking maybe they sort of put eyes on them and they make them look a little bit more like the cars in the movie Cars. And I don't understand why they don't do that. It's kind of weird that they don't. It seems like this is a great opportunity for them to use that intellectual property. And maybe you could even have Lightning McQueen and Tomater on display outside so you could do photo opportunities with them. It just seems kind of strange to me that they don't do that. A missed opportunity, and it's been missed for many, many years now. Now, a couple of quick things about the, the track and the cars. The track itself has a rail in the middle, and the reason is to keep cars from running into each other. Uh, so you stay in your lane, basically. And originally, in Disneyland, they had tried out a couple of things without having the rail there, and there was just too much mayhem as cars went off the path and went to different places. So the rail was an easy solution to that problem. Now, to get the cars on and off the track, they have a spot near the end of the uh, load area where they can actually lower the track and then push the car off the track. The cars themselves do have what amounts to, it's a Briggs & Stratton engine and what amounts to a lawnmower engine in it. And if, you ever noticed, if you've ever noticed a car stalling, what the cast members do is they actually open up the, tr the back part where the engine is and they pull a throttle, much like the pull start lawnmowers that you have. It's really pretty cool. I mean, it's very simple that way because it is just that engine. And they'll just replace the engines out as they need to. They replace the tires as they need to. I believe the number of cars they have on hand at any point in time is about 150. Some of them are gonna be repaired or having the engine replaced or having tires put on or something like that. But there are about 150 cars. And I think the maximum that they put on the track at any time is somewhere around 100. So when they uh, are at a peak time and they have all four lanes open, there's about 25 cars in each lane. It could go a little higher, I think, but it allows them to spread them out and have the cars coming back at regular intervals. And it's kind of neat that way. So it's, it's actually kind of a clever attraction. And it's one of those things that, again, goes back to a, an old past, something that you wouldn't think about. I mean, who thinks about go-karts anymore? We don't have go-karts. Those aren't something that exists. It is weird that they're still running on gas, but otherwise, you kind of think of them as just something kind of neat and, again, anachronistic in a way, but kind of cool and kind of neat. And, and I think I've told this story before. When I was a cast member, my locker was immediately next to a guy who worked on the Speedway. And it was really kind of interesting. I could always tell when he had been there recently because I could smell the gasoline. There was always this faint smell of gasoline in that area around his locker, but when he was there recently, it was really strong and pungent. He'd come back smelling like gasoline. It was amazing to me how much he smelled like gasoline. It was like he was working at you know, some gas station and pumping gas all day. 
and it had to do with the amount of exhaust that was coming out of the cars. And it, you know, there's a there's a certain distinct smell when you're over by the uh, Tomorrowland Speedway. It just has that smell of gas engines that you don't smell as much anymore because now with catalytic converters and all these other things that we have in cars, you really don't have that same exhaust smell that you used to have. And the gasoline smell has been kept down too because the tanks are more well sealed. So it's really kind of interesting that this harkens back to a time like in the 50s or early 60s. And I'm amazed that they haven't progressed at all in changing anything about the attraction other than its size a couple of times when they've had to replace other things outside of the speedway and had to reshape the track to make it work. But that's it. It's pretty remarkable to me that, uh, that this is still there. Now, it is still a favorite attraction in a way. And there's some neat things about it, even though it's sort of odd. It is kind of interesting in the, fa- in the sense that it still exists and still has this sort of love. And it's fun to drive the cars. And my kids, when the first time they saw them, they like, oh, cool, I can drive a car? Yeah, absolutely. And they still love to do it. And as they got a little older, it was fun for them to try and actually drive it, put their foot on the pedal and steer it. And I remember that too. It was fun for me too back in the day. And it's amazing to me that it kind of carries forward and people still love it for exactly the same reason. It's really pretty neat. And I think one of the things that's important is being hard to steer and being hard to accelerate. You know, you have to be tall enough. You have to push down on the pedal hard enough. That's important. And I think you still need to maintain that. You don't want to lose that piece of it because that's the piece to the puzzle that's really important, I think. But I think they could do much more with this attraction and make it much more compelling. Just my opinion, of course, but I think it's kind of interesting. Well, and there you go. That's my story about five attractions at Walt Disney World that I think get overlooked or ignored to a large degree or sort of derided in some cases because they're just antiquated. But they're all kind of interesting and fun, and I, I wanted to share with you a little bit of my love of those attractions. I hope you'll check them out on your next visit. One little spark of inspiration is at the heart <laughs> of all creation. Right at the start of everything that's new. One little spark lights up for you. For my One Little Spark segment today, I thought I'd take a minute and talk about holidays. We treat them with a sort of reverence in this country. And I think other places around the world, there's some of that too. But it's interesting how we talk about holidays as being important and family time and other things that go on. And some people will say, hey, there's a cancel culture going on as it relates to holidays. And I'd like to remind you that holidays themselves always have an interesting backstory to them. There's more to them than meets the eye. So as you look through the calendar year, you might take a look at the holidays and say, okay, what's going on? So with New Year's, well, we're celebrating the new year. I don't think there's any or much controversy about that. That makes perfectly good sense. People like to go out and carouse and have fun and celebrate welcoming the new year. It's, you know, the end of an era, end of an epoch, whatever, end of a year, and you're moving on to something new. So I, I get that one. That one makes perfectly good sense. I don't think there's a lot of room for discussion on that one. There is a debate about Martin Luther King Day, of course. It's a celebration of a man who was trying to foment social justice in this country and who was killed for it, for the cause. And it's, you know, an interesting way that the country has looked at it and said, well, we could honor the man for what he did. Now, this one is probably the most interesting of all of them because there is no federal law that requires that Martin Luther King Day be celebrated. So several states don't celebrate it. And some states actually conflate it with like Robert E. Lee Day, which is just a strange thing to do when you think about it. So it's kind of an interesting little notion there that this holiday is sort of lost to a large degree. Then you have Memorial Day, which makes sense. We celebrate the men and women who have died in U.S. military service. 
I don't think many people have issues with that one in general. It just celebrates the people who have served us and who have died in, in the line of their duty. Then you have July 4th. That one is a celebration of the United States being separated from England. And I think there's a, there's a lot of cause for celebration for that. So that one I'd agree with should be celebrated. As I've told you in the past, Labor Day was created specifically to be an olive branch based on the uprising and the strike that happened as a result of the Pullman Company taking the company town and lowering the wages so that people couldn't afford to live in the company town anymore. And there was a lot of upheaval and a lot of things that happened as a result of that. And Labor Day was created as a way to make peace. So remember its history when you think about Labor Day. When you think about what it's all about, there's a lot more to it. Of course, there's Columbus Day. And there's a lot of debate about Columbus, about whether he was the first person to come to, to the Americas, whether he was actually a good person or not, and a lot of other related things. So I would argue that you should consider carefully what Columbus Day means. Then you have Veterans Day. This one is interesting because it sort of relates back to Memorial Day in a way. This holiday celebrates everyone who served our country and looks at them with uh, some reverence because they served. So that's kind of a nice thing. And it's a day for sort of remembrance and renewal for a lot of our armed services people as well. And then you get to Thanksgiving. And Thanksgiving is probably the hardest holiday to look at. The pilgrims came over. They were able to somewhat flourish in this country and do some things and actually built a life for themselves. But then England stopped coming with ships. And they made friends with the uh, local population, the indigenous population, what we call the Indians, and they were able to trade with them and do some things, and they were celebrating the life that they had made for themselves here. But then the harsh winter came a short time later, and the harsh winter was brutal to everyone. And the pilgrims decided that the only way that they could get what they needed was to take it from the Indians. Because the English weren't coming with more ships right away, they needed supplies to be able to live, so it turned out that there was a lot of angst, and the pilgrims attacked the Indians, and the Indians attacked the pilgrims, and it got ugly. So we're celebrating something that was this richness of this spirit of sharing, and then it turned just a short time later. Kind of interesting. And then of course there's Christmas. And Christmas is one of those holidays that is a weird mix of traditions and different things. And I love Christmas, don't get me wrong. I love the pageantry, the lights, the, the whole thing about the specter of it all. But it's, it's this conflated holiday between a couple of different things. We talk about Christianity, because it's Christmas after all, and we talk about this pagan holiday of putting up a tree and doing different things around, and giving presents and gifts and things like that. So it becomes sort of a hallmark holiday, right, in a way, where you have these different things that go on that aren't necessarily related to one another. So there's a certain sort of fun that goes with it, but yet not everyone in this country celebrates it either, because people have other holidays that they celebrate. A lot of people embrace Christmas as just sort of a fun holiday, nothing wrong with that, but when we conflate the two, it becomes more complicated. You know, which, what is the right way to look at Christmas? What is Christmas exactly? So it's kind of an interesting problem. And then, of course, you have a number of Hallmark holidays that are just holidays where it's expected that you're going to give gifts or have some sort of uh, reverence to a person, whether it's Mother's Day or Father's Day or anything like that. It's just interesting how we built all of these holidays for something that don't necessarily make sense. Now, the one holiday I skipped, and you may have noticed this, is Easter. And Easter is the strangest of all holidays that we celebrate in this country only because it's truly a Christian holiday. Now, we've made it more of something like Christmas in a way, where we've added some other traditions to it, the Easter bunny, the giving of candy, and things like that. But it's a weird thing that we still have that day as a day that we take off, that we recognize what it is, and you know everything's closed on Easter. It's like the one day a year that everything's closed. 
And it's really strange because it's really a Christian holiday. It's the, it's the oddest thing that that one sort of shows up on the calendar as the one that's truly a Christian holiday that everyone observes. It's really strange that way. Anyway, that is all I wanted to talk about. Just holidays, give them some thought, think about what they mean to you. I'm all about the family and some traditions that we build ourselves, but they don't necessarily have to be on these holidays. Think about what it means and how you can help do things a little differently. Maybe, maybe, maybe we start thinking about these holidays just a little bit differently. And that is my podcast for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View Podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there, please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading, one for finding hidden Mickeys, and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gil. Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company. 